Friends, have you ever struggled with recognizing or seeing, being aware of the majesty of God, of the authority of God? There are times in our own lives when we don't see that. We, we're not overwhelmed by that. And I love that how and love the way the song that we have just sung um, asks the Lord and, and specifically tells the Lord, cause our faith to rise, cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority, words of power that can never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. A wonderful request, a wonderful prayer just to ask the Lord to do in us that which we are not able to see, that which we're not able to, to do for ourselves. And this uh, morning, as we have just sung that song, I'm just reminded of the fact that we are dependent upon God's grace for everything good that is supposed to happen in our lives. Well, this morning, as we prepare our hearts for the final sermon in the book of Titus, I want to ask you, do you like endings? Well, it depends what, what you're ending. If it's a very hard class on campus, you can't wait for that class to end, right, students? Uh, if you've been going for a very difficult time in your life, a season of, uh, of just hard stuff going on, you can't wait for that season to come to an end. Some of you are in the midst of such a difficult season. Some of you have just begun a very difficult season and you just can't imagine or can't uh, see how, when will the end of it come. And it can't come soon enough. Right? Endings. If it's been a sweet experience, if, if you've gone through something that has been encouraging and good and you've enjoyed, you're sorry for having it come to an end. If you're reading a, a great novel uh, that's been, has been really engaging, you're sad that you're coming to the end of it. Um, in a way, I wonder how you feel that we are coming to the end of the book of Titus. Has it been a, a long, struggling experience as, you're, as we've worked our way through this short letter? Has it been surprisingly uh, pleasant? I, uh, I was told this week from a, a particular member how surprised this member has been to actually glean so much spiritual benefit from a letter that is so short. Uh, well, this morning, we really are coming to the end of this book. And whether you feel a hooray, I'm so glad we're finally done with it, or you're saddened by it, uh, before we get into it, you might wonder, well, I wonder what's, com what's coming next. And uh, I want to give you a preview of what's coming next after we're done with the book of Titus uh, so that you can start preparing yourself for it. Now, we will not start it um, next week. Next week is Easter week, so we'll have a, a special time next uh, weekend. And then two weeks after uh, Easter, we'll have uh, our brother Sam Echevarria preach God's Word to us. So we will start the next book uh, three weeks uh, or three weeks away. But the next book that we will start working through as a congregation is from the opposite testament, so if we've been in the New Testament, we are going to go to the Old Testament next time. Um, because we've been through a short letter, this time we're going to go through a long book. And actually will be the longest book in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. That will be our next sermon series. But I just want to give that as a heads up so that it might take you four weeks uh, to read through the entire book before we actually start uh, the sermon series through it. So I just want to give that as a way of introduction. 
But back to Titus. We're finishing this book, and no matter how you feel about it, I want us to look at some concluding thoughts about this book. Uh, this overall, the overall theme of this book has been sound doctrine leading to godliness. Sound doctrine leading to godliness. This has been the overall theme for this book. As we look today at the closing verses of this letter, we will see the kind of things often present at the close of a letter. We'll see final greetings. We'll see some traveling information that Paul gives, which he has done in other uh, letters as well. But even here, as we look at the closing verses of this letter, Paul still gives instructions and encouragement that reinforces the theme of godliness that has been going on through this letter. So today, we will look at final encouragement for godly living. Let's open the book of Titus to chapter uh, 3. I'll be reading from verse 12 to verse 15. If you're visiting with us this morning uh, and you did not bring a Bible with you or you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to find a Bible provided in the chairs in front of you. It's, it's like this. It's black color. You may find this passage on page number 998. You're not used to reading a Bible. Uh, the big numbers are chapters. The short numbers are verses. They just help us to navigate through the various uh, content, the various lines of this passage. And I'll be reading from verse three to, uh, chapter 3, verse 12 to 15. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. When I send Artemas, or Tychicus, to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenas, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Here's the word of the Lord for us. Would you bow with me now? What a prayer asking the Lord to bless this time of hearing from him. Lord, we have read your word. Now we ask that by your spirit you speak to our hearts from the truth of these verses. Father, we commit ourselves to you and we are declared that we are dependent upon your spirit. So we pray that you do so, that you speak to our hearts by the power of your spirit and for the glory of Christ. Amen. Friends, the verses we have just read reveal to Titus a surprising news. Titus's ministry in Crete has an end in view. And it's fairly quick. It's fairly near. In verse 12, Paul tells Titus, gives him instructions to come to Nicopolis because Paul planned to winter there. Now, we don't know why Paul called Titus, um, but we know that Paul's ministry was never a lone ranger ministry. Paul loved investing in others. Paul loved raising other people around him, equipping them with the gospel. And then he traveled with them. And then sometimes he would either send them off in a different part of the empire where he could not go, or occasionally 
when he had to move on to the next place, he would leave some of the co-workers behind in the places that they had just visited so they could continue on the work and make sure that things remain stable. And it's the latter that has happened in the case of Crete. In chapter 1, if you just go back a few chapters, actually most of your Bibles will be on the same page. In chapter 1, verse 5, Paul, uh, remember how Paul says to, to, to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete. Remember? So they, they must have traveled together. And then as Paul went on, Titus was asked by Paul to stay in Crete. Why? So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul tells Titus to stay in Crete. But now at the end of the letter, Paul tells Titus, but you need to make plans to come and meet me and do so fairly soon. His time in Crete had an evident end in view, but not before Artemis or Tychicus would arrive. Paul was not going to leave the churches of Crete without spiritual supervision. Now remember, even though Titus was to set up and appoint elders for these churches, the transition was too important for him to leave these churches without a spiritual leader who would uh, help these churches to solidify them in their doctrine and in their way of life, in their godliness. Uh, plus, the, the threat from, from some of the false teachers and the, those who followed them was still active in the churches of Crete. So Paul says, yeah, I'll make plans to come and meet me, but only after I send either Artemis or Tychicus. Oh, Paul was not going to leave the churches of Crete without stable pastoral leadership, even for a short time. I love to see here Paul's care for these churches. The stability and the health for, of these churches was too important for, for Paul to leave them unassisted by, uh, by one of his co-workers. But uh, even before Titus leaves, even before uh, he makes plans to join Paul, Titus had some work to do. Titus had some specific things to make sure that happened in Crete. And in some ways, this is why he wrote this whole letter. All the entire book of Titus is, is this desire from Paul to be sure that before Titus comes to visit him and to meet him, that, uh, that he would do these things. Now, in these final verses of the letter, Paul gives Titus some final instructions, some final encouragements. Uh, we have seen the, the main truths um, in this letter that uh, Paul encouraged two parts. On one side, he encouraged sound doctrine, the truth about God's salvation, the truth about the grace of God, the work that God does in us to change us through the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. But also, the other, the other part, the other half of that truth, the, the, the kind of transformation that happens in us so that we can start living a different kind of life. The godliness the changed life that starts manifesting in us once God has saved us, once God has transformed us from within. So that we see this emphasis of good works throughout the letter. The phrase good works or this expression has been used in, in different ways in this letter. It includes in a very wide sense, uh, the phrase good works includes all practical 
life decisions by which we live out our faith. In the Apostle Paul's language, when he thinks about good works, he is not talking about some good deeds that an unbeliever is able to do. He's talking about those good deeds that come out of a life of faith. He's actually saying in chapter 1, verse 16, that the people who uh, deny God by their works are unfit for any good work. They may claim to know God, they may claim and profess to know God, but they're false professors. They, their profession of faith is false, and therefore, they're unfit for any good work. So at the end of, uh, of this letter, as we look at, at this phrase, good works, that is, is those things which come out of a life of faith, now Paul gives us some specifics, uh, some specific examples of good works. I want to remind you, he's been giving specific examples throughout the letter. The whole chapter 2 is full of specific examples of how people should live their faith. In chapter 2, we see those examples particularly in how Christians ought to live in their relationships with one another, either in the family or in the church. In chapter 3, we see specific examples of how Christians ought to live their lives in society as citizens of, the, of, of their country. Well, now he will give us a few more specifics. And here are the specifics. Be sensitive to the needs of gospel workers. Be sensitive, sensitive to the needs of gospel workers. Look at verse 13. Do your best to speed Zenas, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Now, we don't have much information on why Zenos and Apollos are in Crete and where they were going next. Commentators suggest that, that these two might be the ones who took the letter from Paul to Titus. We don't know. Uh, it's possible. Um, we don't know much about Zenos other than the fact that he was a lawyer. Now, that could mean that he was either a lawyer in, the, in, in practicing the, the Roman law as a profession, or possibly he was a, someone who was devoted to the Jewish law, uh, which would mean that, that his profession would be actually not lawyer in, in our sense of the word lawyer, but a teacher of the law. We just don't know. We do know much more about Apollos. Apollos was, uh, uh, we know him from the book of Acts in 1 Corinthians as well. We know that he was a man who was mighty in the scriptures, and he was fervent in spirit. Uh, so it's possible that Zenos and Apollos were traveling through Crete for the sake of preaching the gospel. In giving these instructions, Paul is endorsing these two names to Titus. He says, take good care of them. They're worthy to be taken care of uh, by the church. Um, we see a similar point of instructions of giving endorsement and encouragement to take care of the needs of those who, who share the gospel um, in the letter of 3 John, one of the letters that we rarely go to. In 3 John, uh, verses 5 through 8, uh, the apostle writes the following, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, 
we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Uh, the bottom line is we see that not only in Paul but also in other parts of the New Testament, Christians were encouraged to take the initiative to support those who spread the gospel and those who travel through as missionaries or those who, who take the gospel in other parts of, of the continent or the world as well and take initiative to support them and support them well. Support them in a manner worthy of God. Support them in a manner that, in such a way that they lack nothing. And Paul instructs Titus to make sure he does that for these two gospel workers. Titus, be sure that they lack nothing. Point is, be sensitive to their needs. Ask them what their needs are and seek to supply them. Now, friends, we as a church um, are committed to support those who take the gospel to the ends of the earth, whether they do it to the ends of, uh, in, in other nations, whether they do it in our own country or continent, like we are doing now um, as a congregation. We're raising support for missionaries who serve through the North American Mission Board, our Easter, uh, Annie Armstrong Easter offering is for that purpose. Um, I encourage you to know the names of the missionaries who are supported by this offering. Like I said, the, the prayer guide in the atrium gives some of those names. It's not an exhaustive list of names, but uh, we want to do that as a congregation. We want to be committed to that. Um, also, besides supporting organizations who are committed to sending off missionaries, we also want to have missionaries that we support directly uh, by, by ourselves as a congregation. Uh, we want to know them. We want to pray for them. We want to uh, get to know them and even invite them to come and visit us. Uh, when other gospel workers visit us, we ought to be generous toward them so that they lack nothing. We can send them an email to see how they're doing. What are ways we can be praying for them or, or encouraging them or assisting them, whether that's emotional assistance, spiritual assistance, uh, assisting them with, with visiting them, encouraging them, or even financial support. And when we do that, dear friends, we become fellow workers for the truth, as John, as the third letter of John says. A life of godliness will be generous to support the advance of the gospel through other gospel workers. When those serving the gospel in other areas see our care for their needs, it encourages them. It blesses them. I remember a few years ago when we, when we supported a, a ministry in, in the Middle East, in, in Dubai, and, and the Van Steenbergs have come and visited us. Um, I remember how they reported of their uh, joyfulness and how encouraged they were by the love and the generosity that this church has showed them. Um, so that it's, it, it was an encouragement to them to know that they can go in the gospel work, do the gospel work, and be supported by other brothers and sisters that are far away from them. It is encouraging to them. And friends, we should be committed to do more of that. Titus, don't send these two brothers away empty-handed. Take the initiative. Ask them what they need and supply for their needs. Make sure they lack nothing. Point number two, learn to be devoted to good works. Learn to be devoted to good works. The other way, the next thing that Paul does as he encourages, uh, gives these final encouragements for a life of godliness, he says, learn to be devoted to good works. 
Now, Titus was not to take care of that particular need with, the, with those two brothers. Um, he was not supposed to do that by himself. Look at verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to doing good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. The particular situation of these two brothers, uh, Zenos and Apollos in Crete, uh, was a specific opportunity when the church as a whole could put into practice their devotion to good works. We have seen several times in this letter how Paul brought that out over and over again. In verse 8, just a passage we read last week, Paul said, the, trustworth- the saying is trustworthy. The saying that he had said prior to in verses 3 to 7 about the gospel, of, of, about the truth of salvation. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Now, I want just for those of you who, who are new to Christianity or new to the faith, I just want to make clear um, to, that you understand good works is not the first thing we do as Christians. Good works is not what we do to become Christians. Notice even in verse 8, Paul says, so that those who have believed in God may devote themselves to good works. We are first called to believe in God. We're first called to respond to to the news of the gospel by repenting of our our sins and trusting in Jesus for salvation. Friend, if, if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're visiting with us this morning, I want to make sure you understand this, this news of, of the gospel and this call to believe in God. Believing in God is not just a mental assent, like I agree or I acknowledge that God exists and God is real. No, it's a little more than that. If that's what you mean by faith, even demons believe that, and yet they're not saved. Uh, th- this believing in God is recognizing first and foremost that God created us. He has made us in His image and likeness. We were made for His glory, and yet mankind chose to disobey and actually rebel against God's purposes for which He created us in the first place. And because Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they triggered upon the entire human race the judgment of God. God said that that when they will eat, or if they will eat, they will die. The judgment that God had promised against their disobedience is death. Death entered the human race. This is why people die today. But it's not just physical death. It's spiritual death, the separation from God. Immediately, that spiritual separation was enacted in the Garden of Eden by the fact that God kicked them out of the land, of the garden. That separation was enacted immediately. But there will be an eternal manifestation of that separation for all those who continue to remain in their sin. God will judge eternally all those who remain rebellious against Him. But God, in His goodness and mercy, would not allow, would not leave His creation to be rebellious against Him forever. He provided a way so that rebellious sinners like you and I could be restored back to God, so that God could be restored back to us, so that we would have a new relationship with Him. God sent His Son, Jesus, who died for our sins, so that through his death, the guilt, the punishment of all those who would repent and believe in Jesus would be fully paid. So friends, Jesus 
did not stay de dead, but he rose again from, from the dead. And this is what we will celebrate next weekend. So that all those who repent and trust in Christ could be granted everlasting life. Friends, if you have never repented of your sins, if you have never turned away from your sins, if you have never trusted in Jesus to save you, I call on you, I encourage you today to respond. I encourage you to ask God to save you. Ask God to do this work of, of salvation in your own heart. If you'd like to know more about that, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. I'd encourage you also to consider talking to another Christian who perhaps has invited you today to join uh, us in this service. Or if you came by yourself, Again, just seek one of us. We'd love to talk to you. But believing in God is this act of, of trusting, relying on Christ to save us. And when we do that, when we turn to God by repentance and faith, we are now transformed inside our hearts from, from the bottom of our hearts, and we are now enabled to live a life that is committed and devoted to good deeds. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. I can see Titus come up to the church and say, Church, I've, uh, I've told you about the gospel. I've told you about how God saves us. I've told you about how God works in us to, to transform us from within so that we can start living a different life from without. Now we get to put it into practice. We have two visitors among us. Um, they are Zenos and Apollos. Meet them. They're here. They're visiting us for a few days. Um, they need a place to stay. Uh, they need some food. And uh, when they're ready to move on, on their journey, they need some resources to, to help them with their journey. So uh, I wonder how many of us can help them? Would you raise your hand? I don't know if exactly that's what he did, but I'm just creating a situation for us. I wonder how many would actually respond to that. Would there be at least one or two who would say, oh, we'd love to help? Would there be a handful, five and six? Would there be a majority? Would there be an overwhelming majority? And what would, they, what would that response from them say about their devotion to good works? Notice Paul takes this opportunity, the visit of Zenos and Apollos, to tell Titus, take care of them, but don't do it alone. This is an opportunity for the whole people to learn how to devote themselves to doing good works. Now, some people, some people may do a good work once in a while. And when they do it, it's a big deal to them. And after they do something good, they happily, happily return to their self-centered ways thinking they can take a break for the next few months because they have done their dues. This is not devotion to good works. This looks more like compliance or obligation to good works, not devotion to good works. Others, on the other hand, others are devoted to good works. They don't keep track of what they do and when they do it. They just do it. And they do it happily. In other words, there's a difference between doing a good work out of duty, out of obligation, out of compliance, or doing it out of devotion. When you do it out of obligation, you do it with a half heart, thinking that 
ah, you could do something else better instead. And look at how good of a person you are because you're sacrificing something else for helping this other person. And you're just starting to think how good of a Christian you are because you're starting to do good things. Oh, friends, that is a half-hearted good deed. Those who are devoted to good works, they don't think much about it. And they don't think much about themselves as being better off for doing it. Which one of these describes you? Are you someone who does it once in a while? Does it compulsorily, out of obligation? Does it thinking that you're going to be a better Christian if you do it? Or do, do you do it with no tracking system in your mind? Do you do it with just a joyfulness, happy to do it? Which one describes you, my dear friend? Devotion to good works may not characterize you right now. And let me say it this way. It's okay. Here's why it's okay. Because there's a tar time to learn it. And it can be learned. And actually, Titus says, and it must be learned. It don't, I don't want you to feel like a second-class citizen if you think, I lack this devotion. Well, take this opportunity. This is a wonderful opportunity to, submit, to commit something this morning. Commit to become a student of learning to devote yourself to good works. There's always a time to start learning this stuff. Devotion to good works is something we learn. We can learn and we must learn. Naturally, we are inclined to care only for ourselves. Naturally, we put our own needs first. Now, there are among us some men and women who are so good in their devotion to good works that it comes across to us that they do it so naturally. I've been thinking about some names, and I wanted to name some among us, but for the fear of not letting others off the list that they should be on it, I just chose not to give any names. But there's some among us right now who are so devoted to good works, and the way they do it, it seems so natural that you might think, well, they're just gifted to do that. Oh, friends, let me assure you, they were not born that way. Someone taught them earlier to devote themselves to living that way. I love to hear stories from some of our older deacons about the generation before them. I keep hearing about a particular couple who has been an example of, of this godliness, of this good works, of this devotion to, to good works. It's, and I'm going to mention them because I hear them quite often, Buddy and Vivian Lewis. Larry, you remember them? And how that couple has been a model of caring for God's people here in so many different ways. I'm encouraged to hear stories from our older deacons and members about the generation they've had before them. And here's an encouragement I want to give to our, or our older members. Friends, the way you devote yourselves to good works is a model for the generation that's younger and watching you do that so well. You do it so naturally. And we, the younger generation, need to learn what that looks like. The way you live your life for the Lord 
not only in isolation, but in community and giving yourself to helping others, to assist others, can impress upon the minds of the younger generation a model of good works that we can learn from you and follow. Friends, devotion to good works is something that we can learn and we must learn. And the verb in the text is an imperative. It's a command. Our people must learn. Do you hear that? Must learn. And it's, let me be a little a grammar geeky. Um, it's in the present tense, which in the Greek language, a present tense means an ongoing action. In other words, we must continue to learn to devote ourselves to good works. Friends, is this something that you are learning? To devote yourself to good works? If you haven't done it so far, make this day a day when you start learning it. Start learning, devoting yourself to good works. Oh, or is it something that still feels like a foreign language? Still the unusual thing about you. It may be difficult. It may not come natural. That's okay. Look around you. Look at the people who do it well. Ask the Lord to help you uh, grow in it. Some of the needs we encounter are uh, not urgent, but are important nonetheless. Other needs are important, and they are urgent as well. And those urgent needs are sometimes those that are most inconvenient. Uh, in this particular case, the two brothers in Crete provided an opportunity for an urgent need. Why should they devote themselves? Why they should they learn to devote themselves to good works? So that they may not be unfruitful, says Paul. Not be unfruitful. Friends, fruitlessness is a dangerous state to be in. Fruitlessness. It's a picture. This is not about physical fruit. It's about the fact that as we grow in the knowledge of the Lord, we are called to be fruitful. To give fruit. To show externally what is happening internally. An apple tree becomes fruitful and gives apples. Why? Because he's an apple tree. A tree that never gives apples, you wonder, is something wrong with it? Jesus said in, in John 15, Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. 2 Peter chapter 1, the passage we've read earlier in our service. Uh, the apostle says, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with the knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, or the other authors of the New Testament, expected, assumed, fruitfulness is something good, and lack of fruit is something that's a caution, that's dangerous. Friends, when we commit ourselves to doing good, when we devote ourselves to living a life of, of doing good to others, we show fruitfulness in our lives. Christian living should not be fruitless. Friends, in this text, the needs addressed are very specific needs, financial needs. But I just want to clarify something. Some of the needs around us are not just 
financial needs, or not just physical needs. We must realize that the needs of others might be emotional, might be spiritual. We can devote ourselves to the needs of others by meeting with them for discipleship. We can devote ourselves to the needs of others by simply visiting another member who is going through a difficult time or simply reaching out to those whom we have not seen, calling them or uh, offering to meet with them. And when we meet, ask them how they're doing, asking what this, what's going on in their lives, offering to read a passage of Scripture, reading and praying with them, or offering to work through a book um, of discipling with another believer. These are ways we can invest in others and do good to them, either physically or spiritually. Titus, don't do this work alone. Our people must learn devote themselves to doing good. Are we learning that, dear friends? Are we a church that we are learning that? I see good signs among us. I praise God for that. I think there's even more that we can do. And those who are new to our congregation, those who have become members recent, in recent years, I hope that you can pick on, on, on this culture of being devoted to do good to one another. A third point that Paul tells us to, and tells Titus about godly living is cultivate relationships with other believers. Look at verse 15. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Now, friends, we may skip very quickly over these greetings. Oh, this is just a, a polite way to say hi and bye. Nothing spiritually fruitful, we might say, at first look. But not for Paul. Notice Paul is interested to cultivate brotherly affection in his relationships with other believers, even with those who are far away from him. He wanted Titus to pass on this greeting uh, from them. Greet the brothers. Greet them. Those who are with me are greeting you, and I'm passing the greeting to you, and I want you to pass the greeting to others. Now look at how Paul describes the others, those who love us in the faith. What a beautiful description of the Christians in Crete. Greet who? Greet those who love us in the faith. Friends, do you have people that you love in the faith? I know you have family members whom you love. I hope you love them. But what about loving others who are in the faith? Paul is aware that these believers in Crete love him and love the other believers who were on Paul's team as well. Paul is aware of their love. I wonder if other Christians are aware of your love for them. I wonder if others, if others were to greet us or to greet you personally, would they describe us as those who love them? In the faith, this love, my dear friends, we ought to express not only to our fellow church members, but to show that love to those whom we support financially in the work of missions and show it to other Christians who are outside of our own church family. Cultivate relationships with other Christians and show your affection for them, even in the way you greet them, even in the initiative to give them a call or, or send them a card of touching base with them, you can show and express love for them. I love how Hebrews 
10, 24, and 25 says about the church, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, the reason why we are committed as a congregation to one another, the reason why we gather regularly as members every Sunday, is so that we might encourage one another towards love and good deeds. So we might practice it week in, week out. This is why we gather. And when we gather, we don't just gather to show up. We gather to, to be an, a mutual and regular encouragement in love and good deeds. And when we do that regularly here, we will do that also towards those outside our own congregation. Friends, I hope you understand why belonging to the church, why gathering with the church regularly, why that commitment of love is so important. Because we grow in that love for ourselves, for one another, and for those outside our congregation. Cultivate relationships with other Christians. Friends, I wonder if our own choice of missing church, when you make it a habit of not gathering regularly with other believers, with other Christians, I wonder if that could be a sign of your lack of love for those Christians. When we skip church regularly, we give others a poor picture of what it means to love others and to do them good. Of course, our, our love should extend beyond this congregation, but it's nothing less than that at the very least. Part of living a godly life as a Christian is that we cultivate relationships with other believers in which we show our love and affection for them. And lastly, lastly, the final thing Paul does in this book at the end of this letter, he gives a benediction. And the benediction is, grace be with you. He has encouraged them. He has encouraged them to take care of the needs of others. He has encouraged them to devote themselves to doing good to one another. He has encouraged them to develop and cultivate affectionate relationships with other believers. Now, he tells them, rely on the grace of God. Grace be with you. Throughout this letter, Paul appealed to God's grace. He told them that we have been justified by grace. We have been saved, declared righteous before God by grace. He told them that God sanctifies us by His grace. That grace, the grace of God when He appeared, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present age. In other words, the grace of God who trains us to live in a godly way has appeared. By the grace we are justified, by this grace we are sanctified, now, at the end of the letter, Paul says, rely on this grace to continue to, do, to live in this way. This grace, may it be with you. If we have been saved, if we have been sanctified, if we are going to learn how to devote ourselves to, to good works, if we're going to be trained in godliness, we must understand our need for the grace of God. Oh, friends, it is grace that teaches us to connect sound doctrine with godly living. It is grace that empowers us to live fruitful lives.
to be fruitful for God's kingdom. Friend, I wonder if you are aware of your need for grace, for God's grace in your life. When we hear this phrase, grace be with you, it's not just a polite Christianese answer to end a letter. It's not just, oh, here's how Christians greet one another. This is their means of saying goodbye. It's more than that. It's literally, Paul says, I entrust you. I wish for you that God's grace will continue to be among you, that he will sustain you, because at the end of the day, we continue our life together. We grow in godliness and in one anotherness and in devotion to good works because of the grace of God among us. Be sensitive to the needs of others, gospel workers. Learn to be devoted to good works. Cultivate relationships with other believers. Rely on the grace of God. May that be ours today. Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for the grace you have shown us. We are grateful that this grace continues to remain with us. Teach us to rely on it. Teach us to seek it. Teach us to cultivate the work of your grace among us and respond to your grace in a way that makes us fruitful for your kingdom. Father, we look to you. At the end of the sermon series of the book of Titus, we look to you and we ask, O oh Lord, that the sound teaching we have heard will cause in us an abundance of godliness for the sake of Christ.